Welcome to the Jack Weston MCAT Podcast with your host, Ahmed Abdelkader. And Eric Olson. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Jack Weston MCAT Podcast with Ahmed and Eric. Today, we're going to be looking at a study strategy that Eric and I have both found to be effective. But before we dive into that, Eric, just reflecting on your journey throughout med school and then back to the MCAT even, what are some overarching sort of takeaways that you have in terms of being an efficient studier? Man, there's so many things that you can talk about there. You know, it's it's tough to like distill down into into one principle. And I don't I don't even honestly think that I can do that. I think part of it is like just the amount of like raw time you're willing to put into things. Part of it is, you know, being an effective studier because you both have to study for a a lengthy amount of time, but those moments that you're studying have to be useful. You know, you right. can't just you can't just be wasting time. And so like we, you know, we talk about using flashcards and like spaced repetition and things like that. I think those can be really helpful. But the further I get into my training, the more I'm thinking and realizing that like just memorizing a fact here and a fact there, like an equation here, an equation there is not going to get you where you want to be. Right. And so what I found is that and this is like honestly a hard a hard realization to come to i think but the more time and and effort you're willing to put in to learning something the more ingrained it's going to be in your memory right like the more work we expend and mental energy and effort we put into something the difficulty that we put into it like makes us remember you know like we remember right. the pain of learning these equations and things. And so kind of in the same vein, you know, the more that, and this is something we'll talk about a little bit today, but the more you can connect principles together and connect, uh, you know, equations and, and principles from the MCAT to real life, um, right. easier it will be to remember in the long run, especially when you get into like medical applications. When you talk about the MCAT questions, a lot of these things, you know, there's an equation that we learn in, in the physics section, um, that you're like, okay, why do I care about, you know, a projectile, right? Like we're, we're not using projectiles in medicine. And that's maybe a, a tougher example, but a lot of these equations that we use, uh, you know, are examples of principles that that are relevant to medicine. And so, you know, today we'll talk about a few principles of things and, and equations specifically that can have applications both to the real world kind of in a, in a broader sense and uh, in medicine specifically that make them easier to remember for the MCAT when you can make those connections, uh, in, in other ways and into real life. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, it's human nature to think more about your struggles than your successes. I know like any competitor, any athlete remembers a mo or many, at least remember a lot more about the losses than the wins, so to speak. And obviously different, uh, you know, grade and benchmark relative to the MCAT, you know, MCAT's not wins and losses per se, but the idea that things that make you struggle force you to sort of reflect on them a little bit more, and that can actually be a blessing in disguise. But I think really, you know, for me anyway, it always comes back to that cliche of, you know, study smarter, not harder. And yeah. I think, you know, there's, there's two elements to being a better studier. You touched on the like the the manpower, the exertion and expenditure piece, which is hundred percent valid. Like anyone that's not willing to work hard is gonna have a hard time being successful. But what's also important is like there comes a point 
where more studying isn't probably going to be the solution. Oh, absolutely. It's more efficient studying. And for me, that's how I survived undergrad. Like I played two varsity sports in college and I wouldn't have been able to do that in my major and do well with some of the handful of other things that I was doing if I wasn't efficient. And Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes efficiency can mean, you know, you know, a little bit of probability. And what I mean by that is like, you know, in, in college, like you're in a class and you're like, okay, listen, the weight of this unit on this final exam is like 5%, not necessarily going to stress the little granular things in this unit. I'm going to understand the big picture. And especially if it's a multiple choice exam, like the MCAT, you can leverage multiple choice to your advantage. Right. And so, you know, for me, there came a point in undergrad where, you know, I just, I need a 4.0 in this class. If that's a 90 or because at my school, a 90 was a 4.0 whether it's a 90 or a 96 in my freshman year, that was a big difference. Cause I was always about, you know, doing as best as I can. Yeah. But as I became a senior, you know, you know, didn't matter as much. And how that translates to the MCAT is sometimes we just got to understand the relative yields of things. And, you know, if something's fairly low yield, it may not be the best use of our time to dive into, you know, just those granular details. Whereas, other concepts, like a couple that we'll talk about today, do have connections and applications that can actually make them easier to kind of cluster with other things that we're already spending time reviewing anyway. Um, and I think that's perfect. Now, or, sorry, I would go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. I, I would just build off of that and say, you know, we'll talk about a couple of concepts um, that have some formulas associated with them. You're yeah. talking about the relative yield of things. And I would say just generally as a principle, I didn't memorize a lot of formulas for the MCAT. I think there's Same. room certainly to memorize some formulas. Some are more important than others. These are important concepts that we'll talk about. I don't necessarily think that they're important formulas to memorize. I think, I think the principles we derive from the formulas are important. But if it comes to test day and you understand the Venturi effect and Bernoulli's equation, but you don't remember the formula, I, th- I think you'll probably be okay. And for me, and I'm thinking back to my MCAT experience, I remember that I was impressed with myself because I did know Bernoulli's equation because I had done so many practice questions on it. Yeah. And similar to what you're saying, like I had missed so many questions, especially on practice exams and practice practice questions and question sets and things like that. When I missed a question, then that was something that was, you know, ingrained in my mind. And so I knew this equation. But again, I think generally speaking, it's more important to understand the relationships, specifically the relationships between variables. It's part of what we'll talk about today, as opposed to you know, the, the one half and the square and things like right. that. I mean, right. And so if it comes down to, Oh, I have time to like study one more thing. I can, I can memorize this equation or I can, you know, learn the concept Then the concept is infinitely more important in my opinion. Yeah. And I think that just, I think what students sometimes don't realize until later on is that through practice and through conceptualization, you kind of retain the formulas by accident anyway. Exactly. And so like, just trust that if you give yourself enough time and you do understand the underlying concept, right? Like all I did to remember my formulas was as I was studying, I made a running formula sheet that I looked at once a week, once it was done, but just like the practice questions and then the understanding of the underlying relationships made that seamless. Like it's not like I was spending time 
what was this equation again? Uh, you, you know, I mean, it just, it was a little bit more yeah. organic. And yeah. I think that's what's really cool about what we're going to look at today is there are two equations that uh, maybe differ slightly in how conceptual they are. I argue one of them is a little bit easier to conceptualize than the other. But from an application standpoint, it explains things that are actually kind of important in the real world. And I think that's what's really cool is like sometimes as pre-med and as MCAT students, we're so focused on like, oh, okay, I need to know this for the MCAT. I need to know this for the MCAT. And sometimes we can lose sight of like, well, yeah, but we're learning this for a reason because it applies here and there. And yeah. I think that perspective is helpful and it just makes learning fun. And so... It is, it is funny, you know, the older I get, the more I talk to people, the more I think like, man, I've done myself a disservice by like spending so much time in the books, learning, you know, studying for the MCAT, studying for these board exams and things, because I know all these factoids about medicine and about science and about, you know, physics or, or psychology, whatever the case may be. And they just don't, they don't apply to real life. Like my friends who are in, you know, finance who like know things about how money works that I have no idea, <laughs> right. but you make a good point, you know, I think, and, and it's not often how I think of things, but all of these things that we do study obviously are relevant to real life. Otherwise we wouldn't be studying them. And 100%. so making those connections, like we're talking about, I think, you know, it not only is important for conceptualization and, and remembering things and, you know, kind of filing it away in your brain, but, uh, it, it makes life kind of brighter by being yes. able to connect those dots and, and think through these things, these, these principles of nature and reality that we, that we understand to a greater degree that, you know, even 20 or 30 years ago for many of these things, we, we had no idea about. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a fun thing when you start to connect concepts. Definitely. With and I think on that note, we, let's dive into Henry's law oh. first for a minute. And I won't get too ahead of myself. I'll come back to the story in a little bit, but I didn't even really make this connection when I was studying for the MCAT. This was something that clicked for me. Funny enough, in my senior year of college, I took a, a two-part course. Part one was just cardiopulmonary function, just basic equations, organs, you know, just structural pieces. And then part two was looking at cardiopulmonary function in extreme environments. So high altitude and... Mm -hmm. uh, in uh, a, a climate with air pollution and uh, hyperbaria, so you know high pressures, and then you yeah, do a little cool. bit of comparative physiology, looking at why. And I can't remember the the species of bird, but like some some <laughs> bird that flies over the Himalaya mountains is just so far superior to you know what we as humans possess from a biological yeah, standpoint. Yeah. You look at, um, as far as like hyperbaria goes, we looked at like the blue whale and what adaptations that really cool course. Uh, but, um, one of the coolest things I took away from that. And I took this course after taking the MCAT was in hindsight, how Henry's law applied to hyperbaria specifically and, and more on that in a moment, but just as a refresher, what Henry's law is, it basically tells us that the solubility of a gas in a solution is proportional to the pressure of that gas above the solution. And, you know, one of the ways that I always conceptualize this was, okay, if I have a ton of gas above a solution, it's basically forcing molecules of gas into that solution. And I think the classic visual for this is a soda can, right? As soon as you open that soda can, right? You, you hear like the click, right? And then yeah, yeah. you leave a soda can open for a while, it happens. Right, it just 
It goes flat. It goes flat because all that carbon dioxide is now, it, you know, it's left the solution, right? So it's a, uh, it shows how the solubility decreases there. But yeah, I, th- uh, I think, you know, you, you speak of it in terms of like the, the gas molecules are exerting this pressure down on the liquid. And I think, you know, especially with the soda can, you can think of it in the opposite way that like right. the dissolved gas in the liquid is exerting a pressure on the air to equilibrate, right? Because when a soda can right. is made, it's like they fill it up and then they put the top on and there's like a very small amount of carbon dioxide in the air, in the, you know, small amount of air above yeah. that. And there's a bunch of carbon dioxide in the liquid, right? And so like, those carbon dioxide molecules are like kind exactly. of out of solution and into the air above it right. until they equilibrate equilibrate. And that's why you have increased pressure inside of a Coke can or, or a soda can is because of that carbon dioxide that's coming out of solution. And so exactly. it kind of goes both ways, right? Like if there's a higher pressure, if there's a higher partial pressure of the gas of, of that particular element, then it will, or that particular molecule, I should say, then it will kind of increase its, right. its concentration solution and conversely if there's a low concentration in the air above it then it will come out of solution and, and equilibrate into the air so that's why you know that's why there's high pressure inside the can and that's why when you open it then it goes flat uh, and yeah, that exactly right and just even there like highlighting how we can understand something from two different vantage points right and i think sometimes as students we get caught up in like oh this is what this person said this must be the right way or this must be the only way, which is even worse, yeah. right? Yeah. Understanding that there's often multiple ways to see the same concept. And um, th- I think it'll make sense shortly why I sort of ex- explain Henry's Law that way. It just has to do with the real world application that sort of clicked for me in that class. But it, it has to do with scuba diving, right? And personally, I've never been scuba diving. On my bucket list, Eric. I don't know if you have. I have not. It's also it's something I've thought a lot about doing, but it just ha- I haven't had the time. Utah and Michigan might not be the most scuba diving friendly environment. You, so you can you can scuba dive in the Great Lakes. It's like freezing cold, obviously, but uh, you can do it. Just a side note: I grew up in Indiana, and we would go up to Lake Michigan fairly frequently. Cold. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> cold, yeah. cold, cold. It is cold. The other nah. thing. It's kind of of interest, and you probably know this, but there are a bunch of shipwrecks in the Great Lakes. Yeah. From like, you know, there's like a bunch of shipping routes from, right. you know, Chicago up to wherever else. And like the St. Lawrence River like right to the Atlantic. Yeah. And they're always like discovering new shipwrecks. So I think, you know, if you could bear the cold, which I'm not a cold weather. That's I a like big the winter, I like the snow, but I'm not really a cold water kind of guy. Yeah. I think it would be really cool to check out those shipwrecks scuba diving. We'll add it to the bucket list. But, yeah. um, I think with scuba diving, one of the things that you're always told not to do right after is get on a plane. Yeah. Right. And the reason for that ties into Henry's law. And it's actually kind of important because if you think about it, people are going scuba diving on vacation, right? Very, not very likely, but entirely possible one of the later days of their vacation they finish up maybe go to bed or maybe they go straight onto a plane and that can actually be sure. quite dangerous for reasons that we're going to look at and it, it's kind of wild but basically what happens we know that as we scuba dive or forget scuba dive as you swim deeper and deeper underwater right there's more fluid above us higher pressure right you feel it in your ears 
You know, yep. you might feel it in your sinuses even. It's all super but pleasant. If you got a cold, it's killer. Oh, it's brutal. And uh, I remember even as a kid, there uh, when my dad was in school, the like the recreation complex at the university had like a 17 foot or 17 foot deep pool. And uh, I was only like eight or nine at a time. I would get like maybe 10 feet deep and that was it. Like I'm coming straight yeah. back up. Yeah. But, Why would you want to go deeper than that? But like the varsity swimmers would go down to the bottom and then do laps at the bottom of the pool. And I'm just looking down. I'm like, ain't no way. No crazy. chance. That is crazy. But um, as we have that greater pressure above us, right? Like we talked with Henry's Law, the solubility of, we'll say, stuff goes up, right? And the fluid that it's dissolving in is our blood, Okay. What's funny is, or I shouldn't say funny, but what's interesting is that's not actually the dangerous part about scuba diving. Going down doesn't actually cause a lot of problems for people, even though the pressure is higher, right? Because as we go down, you might think, oh, you know, you're, you're deeper underwater. That, that's the dangerous part. Really, it's coming up. That's the problem. Why is that? Well, let's, let's think about it, right? If we're scuba diving, we've got our scuba tank, right? We're inhaling these gases. As we go down, right, the solubility of those gases is going to come up, right? And so that means there's more gas dissolved in the blood, which isn't inherently a bad thing. What's the problem is that oftentimes people that scuba dive take their leisurely time going down, they explore, and then as soon as they're done seeing whatever it is that they're seeing, they want to just shoot back up. Well, that's a huge problem because if we think about that soda can, Similar to opening the can, shooting up in the water causes sudden drop in pressure, which means there's a sudden drop in solubility. Mm -hmm. The difference, though, between a soda can and the human body is there's no outlet for that gas to go. Right. And so people are probably wondering, you know, okay, then if there's no outlet, what happens? Well, we got to think about this for a second. If gases are coming out of the blood. That's Part one of the problem. Part two, from the ideal gas law, we know, as, know that as the pressure of a gas goes down, the volume is going to expand, which yeah. is so, you know, it, it's a dub, like a double whammy, so to speak. Right. And so, where these gas bubbles end up going is into our joints because that's where there's the greatest space. And you, anyone can do this at home right now. If you bend a joint, you're increasing the space in that joint capsule. And so what these gas bubbles end up doing, they go into all of your joints, they continue to expand, and they force you to bend your joints, and it's literally a condition, ironically enough, called the bends. The bends. That's where and, you get it. And it's mind-blowing. And I just, I, I, never, I never knew this until I took that class. And you see pictures of people coming out of water with the bends, and it's kind of wild. Like... What is the like? finger? Oh, yeah. Like, just it's when you get it, and again, I've never had this happen to me, but if you get it bad, you're like locked in place. And that's, you know, a positive outcome, even. There were times where, you know, people would die from this because their joints would just rupture, right? Yeah. This is probably, you know, way back in the early days of scuba diving. Now there's, you know, regulations as to how much you can ascend per unit. Yeah, if you time. go really deep, you have to like take breaks in your exactly. ascension. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that's just to allow 
your body to exhale those gases by transporting them back to the lungs as opposed to letting them just diffuse out into joint capsules and cause problems, right? And so now people hear this and probably think, well, I'm never going scuba down. But there, it's it's a treatable and reversible condition. And what's cool is how they treat it. What they do is when people come out of the water with the bends, right? They put them in a hyperbaric chamber. So hyper meaning elevated, baric meaning pressure, right? If we think about why that's effective, now thinking back to how I described the soda can analogy earlier, that pressure is going to push all that gas back into the blood, which can then be carried back to the lungs and exit. And that's why... You're told never, you're, you're advised not to go on a plane right after scuba diving. Because as you go up in a plane, granted, planes are pressurized to about 9,000 feet as opposed to 30,000 feet. But 9,000 feet is still a significant drop in pressure for every, and since I've moved to Canada, I start thinking in meters, but every thousand <laughs> meters you go up in altitude, the partial pressure of oxygen, for example, drops about 10 millimeters of mercury. Oxygen is about 20% of atmospheric gas. So if we prorate that, you're dropping about uh, 50 millimeters of mercury for every thousand meters. Okay. All right. So at 9,000 feet, that's a little bit less than two miles. So Oh, we're testing my math here. You're uh, doing the math right now. <laughs> two, so two miles, a little bit less than two miles is about 3,500 yards, right? Okay. So about 3,000 meters, I yes. think. Sure. Somebody's yeah. going to shock my... That sounds going to be a little bit less than here, I'll, look, I'll look it up for you right now because I want to know. Oh, man. We're putting me two on the miles spot. miles and meters? All right, hold on. Let me, let me revise this a little bit. So 9,000 no, no, you're, you're right. 3,200 30, meters. You're right. Okay, you're cool. spot on. Pretty close. Yeah. I was going to go actually a little bit lower, but all right, cool. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll stay where you are. Yeah, yeah, three thousand. <laughs> Price is right. Um, but yeah, and it's like that was a connection for me. Where if I had known that studying for the MCAT, I would have spent a fraction of the time on Henry's Law. Yeah, yeah. And it's just like I didn't realize how powerful those real world applications were until late in my MCAT prep, and then a lot of them I made after the prep. And, yeah. and that's one of my sort of mission statements here as an instructor at Jack Weston is like, how do I make those applications more, uh, not just obvious, but more clear, right? And more sort of ubiquitous across different topics because it's it makes, like I said, it makes just learning fun and yeah, it just, it's easier to retain, right? Like I could not look like, I don't see Henry's law on a daily basis by any means. Like I maybe see it monthly. We've got a regular check-in maybe, but um, infrequently, but it's, I'm never going to forget. I got my, I got my soda can here. So I'm, oh, you can't really see it, but I'm, I'm thinking about Henry's law and I drink probably more, more soft drinks than I should. So I want to just touch briefly on, on something that you said, um, which is that you, when you're deep, you ascend and you stop before you ascend all the way so that you can breathe off some of that nitrogen is usually what it is because it's the highest component of the atmosphere, right? Right. Um, and so so to talk a little bit about that physiology, it's another 
maybe less like memorable way that we think about Henry's law, but but maybe more applicable to medicine. And I'll just say, you know, the, we're talking about kind of the relationship between these variables and things. The the equation um, is that the vapor pressure of the solute. So we'll say I'll say oxygen because that's what I'm going to talk about equals the concentration of oxygen of the solute or oxygen in the liquid or you know blood in this case times some constant and the constant is like different for if you're using concentration or if you're using like mole fraction it's different for like what kind of fluid you're using so it's always different like if they want you to calculate something they're going to give it to you so I i wouldn't worry about these constants but basically what you see with this equation is that you have a direct relationship between the uh the uh partial pressure or the the vapor pressure of a solute and the the concentration in a liquid and so as the vapor pressure increases the concentration increases and and you know that's what we're talking about so as far as you know like cardiopulmonary physiology goes when you take a deep breath in and there's a lot of oxygen in the alveoli right then you have the alveoli that's like sitting right next to capillaries and so there's yeah. a high vapor pressure of oxygen in those alveoli compared to in the capillaries. And yep. so you'll get diffusion of oxygen across that membrane from the air in the alveolus into the bloodstream. And that's how we get oxygen into our right. blood. It's just diffusion across this membrane because of Henry's law, right? And then similarly, we talk about exhaling and respiration and getting carbon dioxide out, or in the case of you know scuba diving and coming up and getting nitrogen out or whatever else the case may be. Yeah. Um, you have like, a low concentration of carbon dioxide. Do you know what the, I think the like mole constant, the, um, the mole fraction of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is like 0.03 or it's like something negligible. Super, like, there's yeah, just yeah, yeah. minimal carbon dioxide in the air. Exactly. But you're building up carbon dioxide in your blood, right? Yes. When there's that interface between the blood, which has a higher concentration of carbon right. dioxide and the air in the alveolus, which has a low partial pressure of carbon dioxide diffusion across that gradient, across the membrane. Yeah. So you have carbon dioxide leaving your system and then you breathe it out, right? So that's yeah. where, you know, carbon dioxide oxygen exchange happens is between that membrane of the alveolus and the, and the uh, right. capillaries in the, in, the, in the lungs. And, you know, this is, this is Henry's law. This is how we breathe. It keeps us alive. And this is a perfect example of, of you know, the sort of thing that the MCAT could throw at you and say, you know, here's here's a situation we want you to apply Henry's law and it's in this, you know, kind of biological system. Because they love to do that, right? They love to take 100%. some sort of principle that like, again, like I, I mentioned projectiles earlier and I use it because I think it's like a little bit bizarre that we have to know for the MCAT, right? Like, yeah, it's, it's hard for me to find parallels between projectiles and, and medicine. Unless yeah. you're like throwing a, a pill, like a Motrin across the room to someone in his mouth or something. Not but, a lot um, of projectiles within the human body. Not a lot of projectile. <laughs> projectile vomiting, I guess. But still, I, you know, I don't. <laughs> I mean, yeah. But anyway, they, they love to take these principles that you're like, what does this have to do with anything? And they put it in some biological system or format that makes it relevant and makes right. it relevant to medicine. And, and, and that's how they love to to mix things up on you and make it Absolutely. more difficult for you. When you get a question, you get a passage about something and it's kind of confusing. And so this is how, this is how you need to think about things when you're studying, not only to be able to remember, but so that when they bring something up in a context like this, you're like, this is perfect. I've already thought about this. I know how cardiopulmonary respiration goes. Right. I know how that's a diffuse. And so, you know, I'm ready for this. And I, and I don't say that to mean that you have to be prepared for every scenario. Right. But I, 
can be a helpful thing in, in thinking of these things in contexts that are kind of out of the ordinary and especially in these biological uh, scenarios. I completely agree. And I think, you know, just as a complete aside, the cardi- cardiopulmonary system is very interesting. Like, oh, absolutely. It, like, I am. I am such a huge sucker for like oxyhemoglobin saturation curves and left shift, right shift, and just the performance aspect of it. Like that was one of the other cool things we looked at in that course that I was mentioning earlier was like elite athletes, right? Like what is it about like Kenyan marathon runners, for example, that just makes them so elite and funny enough, um, you know, the, the original hypothesis was you know, they live at altitude a little bit. So maybe there's some hematological uh, adaptations there. But the biggest factor per research anyway, is actually that they actually have slightly uh, lighter legs. And so the oh, yeah. running economy is a little bit Interesting. higher. Interesting. Which over, you know, a 26 point something mile race adds up. But yeah. that's, uh, that's an aside. But You're thinking of it in kilometers, aren't you? Uh, no marathons. I think of in miles still. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I always remember it's 26 and change and like the number yeah. isn't very nice in kilometers either. It's like 42, I think 43. Oh, like, terrible. Yeah. Terrible. Not 42 is cool. Like I, I'm thinking even in terms of sports, 43 is just, it doesn't mean anything to me. 43, 43 was my number when I was a freshman lacrosse player in high school. So that actually, oh yeah. Has, has some dearness to my heart personally, but uh, fair enough. Then I, then I graduated and took number three. Gra- graduated from forty three to three right. when I was yeah, a sophomore, yeah. and that's what I stuck with. So fair enough. Anyway, um, no, I think uh, even just like touching on that, there, guys, like find things that you really like learning about, um, and partner that with things that maybe you don't necessarily like learning about as much because it just gives you something to look forward to to complement something that you don't look forward to as much but just a little uh that's something that i would do like i and people might you know laugh when they hear this but like i love physics just because like i had taken physics one and two in college and i was good at math and even eric's looking at me like oh, man, you I, I don't like that i don't like that at all but have you tried biology? Because biology is like really where it's at. Yeah, well, you're gonna, you're gonna forget about physics too. when you start doing biology. But I, and again, a lot of people will hear this and say, "Like, dude, what's wrong with you?" But like, I never loved studying sociology. Like, I just like I didn't like it, and it just it wasn't something that I could readily connect. Like, it made sense, but it was like there was a lot of terms, and like there were some parts of psych that I found really cool, but soci wasn't really that great for me and so i'd always partner physics with sociology when i would study and that was just kind of how i did it but oh, okay i got you yeah. Uh, yeah in any case i think one of the other cool applications that we wanted to talk about today uh has to do with the venturi effect and with the bernoulli equation and starting with the equation i think one of the best ways i've ever sort of conceptualized this is it's very similar to conservation of energy in yeah. that we've got kind of conservation of pressure right you've got atmospheric pressure on both sides of the equation which typically is going to be the same so usually it cancels out and then you've got a component of static pressure which is you know the fluid exerting a force against the walls of the vessel and that manifests manifests itself as like the height of a fluid column Mm -hmm. you've also got a dynamic pressure which is 
you know, the, the related to the movement of a fluid. And, uh, I honestly, I didn't even fully wrap my head around that until I started teaching here. But, um, that's one thing that I think a lot of people get confused is like, we'll see pressure in so many different equations and then we'll get confused because sometimes it's talking about that dynamic pressure and other times it's talking about static pressure, hydrostatic pressure. For example, the pressure in Posey's law is dynamic pressure. Like so many times students will say, oh, but like if pressure goes up, velocity goes down because of the Bernoulli equation. It's like, well, it depends what kind of pressure we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, lots of cool applications with the Bernoulli equation. I'll, I'll defer to you here, Eric, to start, but like, where does your mind go when you think of that equation and the Venturi effects? Yeah, it's it's a good question. I'll let, I'll let you talk a little bit about the Venturi effect because I think that is one of the really cool applications. Um, I So for me, like... It, the Bernoulli equation, I think, is a beautiful thing. And I think it can be confusing. I agree with you. I kind of think of it a little bit differently, honestly. It's it's great to hear your perspective. Um, I'm not a physics guy. So I will put it in terms of like how I thought about it. And, you know, maybe I'm like totally off now that I'm saying it out loud. But <laughs> but it worked for me. Um, so the equation itself, right, K being some constant is equal to P being atmospheric pressure, right? So I think of that as just pressure. And then plus uh, rho G H. Yeah. Right? Rho is the I think the density of the fluid. Yeah. G is, you know, the gravitational constant and H is the height of the column, as you stated. Right. And so to me, you know, that's kind of like uh that's like a gravi- that's like a gravitational thing. Sometimes you'll get a question where they'll talk about like the height of a like a column of water and you've got yeah. to dig it at the bottom. And you know, if we have time we could talk about that a little bit, but that's where that comes in, right? It's the height of like this thing that's five meters above your spigot that's at zero, right? They can just on that point there, I want to emphasize height, not shape. And the reason I emphasize that is because pressure is defined as force per unit area, right? And so the area is accounted for by the pressure. In other words, the shape is accounted for by the pressure. It's just the height now. It's just the height matters. And I remember... When I was studying for the MCAT, I had a practice question on like the the pressure at the bottom of like a cone mm-hmm. or at different points in the cone. And I was like, well, it's got to be less than what I just calculated because it's narrower. Really, it's the exact same. But right. anyway, just to the side. Good stuff. Um, so, so, so equation K equals P plus rho vg or excuse me rho gh yeah plus one half rho v squared right and that's like what you call the dynamic pressure i think i thought of it as as kinetic energy right right and it's and i think the key term there you know you have rho in everything so it doesn't matter quite as much rho being again density um but basically you have like this gravitational energy this pressure and this kinetic energy right so one of the ways that I, th- so, so the thing that I think about is that oftentimes they'll have you looking at a system, like we talked briefly about the column of water, but the way that I think for me, it got tested more was thinking about, I'll talk about like a hose, like you put your finger over a hose, but, yep. but the way that they tested it for me, a lot of times was just like a blood vessel, right. it's like an atherosclerotic plaque, right? And so you have some yep. narrowing of a tube. Yes. And what they'll do is they'll talk about, you know, how pressure 
and you know rho vg or rho gh excuse me and how the kinetic energy all kind of relate to each other inside of this system yep and what it's what's important to realize is that you know on the other side of this equation you have k which is a constant and so when one of these entities goes up one or both of the others is going to have to go down right, right? So, go ahead do you have something and, to say and i was just gonna uh make a connection there because I don't know necessarily that a lot of students will will hear K and wait, what's K? But I think just sort of building off of what you said, it's just highlighting the fact that the sum of those pressures is constant, right? Exactly. So replace K with anything, anything, yeah. anything. Yeah. yeah, K doesn't matter. It's it's just to indicate that when one of these things is going up, the other is going down, right? Exactly. Because they always have to add up to equal the same thing on the other side. Right. And so, you know, when we think about a tube or, a, you know, I'll use it in terms of a blood vessel because I think that's, again, like putting in terms of a biologic uh, system and something that could be memorable and and, uh, and relevant. So if you have a tube that's a blood vessel and you have an atherosclerotic plaque inside of that tube that narrows the vessel significantly, yep. right? Um, they'll say, you know, point A is you know right here before the plaque point b is you know where the plaque is narrowing the vessel right and point c is after the plaque and it'll say you know which one of these points has the you know the greatest the lowest pressure maybe they'll say yep and so uh we talked about you know atmospheric pressure atmospheric pressure is the same within a blood vessel you know maybe you're yep. standing up even even if you're standing up and you're looking at a blood vessel it's like the length of your head to your feet it's it's two meters like it's not really going to change the right. atmospheric pressure so that's right. like out of this equation right it's not changing from one point to another yeah and so at that point all you're looking at is pressure the what, what was the word you used i think it's not atmospheric pressure it's not dynamic pressure static it's static pressure right yeah. so we're looking at static pressure and we're looking at dynamic pressure, which I would I would term as velocity. Right. Right. Because this is the one half rho V squared term. And so the, the thing yeah. that's changing here is not the density of the fluid. The thing that's changing is the velocity. And so you're kind of looking at velocity and pressure as kind of interchangeable. When when velocity goes up, pressure is going down. When pressure goes up, velocity is going down. Right. Right. And so that's kind of how I think about these sorts of systems and these sorts of equations. Yeah, And so what I'm thinking about is, you know, if you have a particular volume of blood that's flowing through a tube and you narrow that tube to like, you know, a quarter of the size of what it was initially, yep. it happens when we have a plaque, right? Is that the, the diameter of the blood vessel is decreasing significantly. Right. And you're going to have to continue to push that same volume of fluid through the vessel within the same, you know, amount of time. And so, you know, the, uh, the, the fluid velocity being like area of the tube times velocity of the fluid if the area yeah. is shrinking the velocity is increasing right right so right at this point where you have a plaque and the diameter is so shrunk down the velocity of that fluid is going to go way up so that yeah. it can get through and and prevent itself from like exploding your blood vessel right right and because of that increase in velocity we said when velocity goes up then pressure goes down then you'll see yeah. a decrease in pressure and so you know, again, when there's narrowing, there's an increase in velocity, there's a decrease in pressure. And it's a little bit counterintuitive because when we we think about these systems, a lot of times, as I kind of mentioned with a hose, I, at least when I was growing up, you know, I grew up in Florida and like it was sunny and we had we had a hose, we would play out in the mud and stuff like that. Yeah. And when you put your finger over the end of a hose, it's like you feel all this 
this water that's pushing on your thumb, right? right? And then the water sprays out and you're like, oh, there's all this pressure and there's all this, there's all this like volume of water that's coming out. It's coming out really fast. Yeah. What you're feeling on your thumb is not the pressure of where the water is coming out. It's the pressure of behind where the water is slower. Yeah. And that's where you're feeling an increased pressure. But where the water is coming out of the hose, the pressure is decreased. The velocity is increased. Yeah. So it can be a little bit confusing. And I will just kind of round out the example. And I'd love, I'd love your thoughts as well, Ahmed. But I'll round out the example by saying, you know, if they ask you before the plaque and after the plaque, if the diameter is the same, the pressure is the same. The velocity yeah. is the same. You know, all these points in Bernoulli's equation are going to be the same. Now, yeah. if the diameter increases then the velocity will decrease, right? Because you have a greater area, your velocity goes down. And yeah. when your velocity goes down, your or your kinetic energy or your dynamic pressure goes down, then yeah. uh, the pressure the pressure will increase, the static pressure will increase. And so again, it's it's kind of these systems of like all these variables are affecting one another. And so you yeah. have to, you know, how is one changing and how can I, you know, determine what's going on with the other two based on what's happening with, with the one that I know. If that makes right. sense. And, and two things I just want to touch on there with respect to the plaque, what's scary about a plaque, obviously, number one, it's occluding a major blood vessel, which in and of itself is a problem. But building back to the Bernoulli equation, if we think about what's happening there, that dynamic component of pressure is increasing because the area is smaller. So the velocity is mm -hmm. going up. Mm -hmm. It means that static component of pressure, which remember is against the walls of the vessel, is going down. That actually can create a bit of suction that causes that plaque to break off and it becomes an embolus, mm -hmm. which can kill you because that plaque is now going from a bigger artery to a smaller mm -hmm. artery and it's going to fully block that off now. And if it's a coronary artery, it's fatal. That's a heart and, attack. And if it's, you know, if it's in the cerebrum, then it's a stroke. And if it's in the lungs, then it's a pulmonary embolism. And all of right. those things are very bad, right? And if it's yeah. in the leg, then it's, you know, DVT. I don't know if there's really a term for that. It's like ar arterial occlusion in, in the lower extremity. And that's, right. you know, that can be an indication for, for amputation, ultimately. Right. Depending on how it gets. <clears throat> and yeah, there's, again... Part of why cardiopulmonary, I just find super interesting. Like in that same course, I keep referring back to that course, but like we talk about like at altitude, like things like high altitude cerebral edema, high altitude pulmonary edema, how these things end up happening. Um, it's, it's a very delicate system. Uh, but in any case, just, um, making a connection there, of, you know, the relationship between those two different types of pressures and, how that manifests in terms of physiological outcomes. And what I want to leave everyone with building off that principle actually has nothing to do with the MCAT. It has to do with planes okay? and how planes function. Right. And so anyone who's ever been on a plane, you know, you'll see the wings of the plane and the wings of an airplane are constructed in a very specific way. If anyone ever, you know, pays attention closely you'll see that the bottom part of the plane wing is fairly flat, whereas the top is a little bit round, right? And there's obviously, there's other aspects to the uh, to the wing. There's, I don't know what they're called, but those flaps that come up when you're landing. Those flaps, yeah. 
Yeah. The landing flaps? I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm by no means a pilot. I don't so know a lot no about clue. planes. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, they come up to increase air resistance to help slow you down. But in any case, if you think back to um, the Bernoulli equation, right? One thing that I want people to understand is that air is a fluid, right? So keep that in mind. If we think about the plane going through this fluid of air, the distance that the air has to go above the wing is greater than below the wing, right? Because the bottom of the wing is flat, the top is rounded. So you got to go up and over and then back down, mm -hmm. right? And so if that air is traveling a greater distance per unit time, the velocity of that air's movement is higher. So above distance, the wing- Distance over time, right? That's velocity, distance over time. So exactly. distance is greater, the velocity is higher. Given the same time, exactly. And so now that velocity, that dynamic component of pressure above the wing is higher, which means the static component of pressure above the wing is lower. In other words, the static component of pressure is higher below the wing. And so you can think of these two static components of pressure as like pushing against the wing on opposite sides. And when that that push, and I'll, I'll use push for now, it has a formal term, is greater on the bottom, that creates what we call lift. Yeah. And it's, it's what helps planes take off. Yeah. And so I always, uh, I remember learning that. And I always thought to myself, like, I wonder whoever like, built the first plane, like the very first plane, not the first functional plane, but <laughs> the first plane. Like I always imagine like, I wonder if they like had the wings like upside down and it could just like never take off. Right. Because if you think about it, that was why, yeah, it was that, getting pulled that, down into the earth. Exactly. Like that subtle structural difference can cause a plane to be sucked down into the ground. And it, we're talking like, if you're, you know, 50 feet away from the wing, you might not even notice the change in curvature. Like if you're yeah. obviously if you're sitting on the like the the window seat right by it, you can tell pretty clear. But like just these these small, just minor differences to the the average eye are the difference between you know flying versus taking you know a really bulky Uber, right? <laughs> like. <laughs> with wings <laughs> exactly yeah. a bulky uber that can only get you from point a to point b on the runway yeah. um, but no it's just i think that's what made me i think successful on the mcat and throughout college was just like i would find things that were interesting and yeah. that gave me something to look forward to and learn it right and yeah i i think you know we and i'm i place an emphasis on these kind of biological examples because I think they're relevant and they're cool. Um, but I agree. And this is one that I thought about before I took the MCAT too. I think, you know, Bernoulli's equation can be confusing and difficult. Um, I think yeah. what's important to remember is again, that there is a constant on the other side. And so these three, these three variables, pressure and the static, the atmospheric pressure, the static pressure and the dynamic pressure have this relationship of when one goes up, one goes down. And I think right. this plane example, and so, and so I guess I would just term, if you take anything away 
from this, I would say when there are these equations, it's to remember these relationships and use these examples Definitely. to help you remember the relationships. I think this plain one is a fun one. I don't think it really, I don't know if I ever had a question on this. I don't think so, but yeah. it is a way to kind of visualize a very common everyday thing and use this equation to help explain some behavior that like we're all familiar with, right? Because we all have been on a plane or at least know that people right. travel via air travel. And so, you know, again, this relationship between these, the, you know, the static and the dynamic pressure and and recognizing how velocity of the fluid affects these things and, you know, thinking through and, you know, if you're listening to this, I would hope that you would take some time and, and think through these variables and think through these scenarios. Yeah. Because, you know, listening to the podcast is great, but you're, you're not going to remember it unless you put in the effort to really Definitely. think through these things. And again, these are, I think, kind of fun and, and interesting examples. And I would hope that we can share more examples with you all going forward of, of things that are, you know, relevant and memorable, things that will help you to, you know, pull this equation out come test day so that you right. can remember these, these variables and these relationships and, and use them to your advantage. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't have said it better myself. I think, you know, just making learning fun and having real world connections that you can refer back to to better understand something. And so hopefully you guys are able to use that in your prep for the MCAT and beyond with, and, you know, eventually on board exams and things like that and happy studying.